Welcome to The Third One Sucks, where we rank every movie in a franchise from first to worst. I'm Dan Ellis. I'm Mark Bell. And what are we going to talk about today, Mark? We are today looking specifically at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the film that launched the entire franchise. This is an American martial arts superhero comedy film directed by Steve Bannon. It is based on the comic books of Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. Uh, It follows the adventures of Splinter, the Turtles, April O'Neil, Casey Jones, uh, and their conflict against the Shredder and the Foot Clan. This film stars Judith Hogue, Elias Codius, the voices of Brian Tochi, Robbie Rist, Corey Feldman, and Josh Pius with animatronics from Jim Henson's Creature Shop. It premiered on March 30th, 1990, and was distributed by New Line Cinema. In discussing how we wanted to set up this show, one of the things we thought might be fun is to take a look at how the movie is received. What have we got for Ninja Turtles? Where did you look? I know you found this week's. What we wanted to do is we wanted to go to you, the people, because you, the people, (laughs) truly know great art. Uh, This one comes from Common Sense Media from reviewer Film Fan, who said, It's mildly amusing, but I can't think of anything else positive to say about this movie for a seven-year-old. Violence, bad language, and crass product placements abound. The overwhelming message is that the world is a bad place, the police are useless, and you'd better know how to fight. We turned it off within ten minutes, during the (laughs) second scene of rather brutal person-on-person violence. I mean, obviously, we're going to have a lot of positive things to say about this film franchise, so we'll make up for this person's review. But they're not wrong in the first part. I mean, the overwhelming message that the world is a bad place and the police are useless. Like, I mean, I mean, are they wrong? You decide. (laughs) (laughs) They're shocked about the uh, person on person violence of a movie with the word ninja in the title. I mean, they couldn't have seen it coming. (laughs) Like a ninja. (laughs) all right we mentioned earlier we talked about launching with the ninja turtles because it's a franchise that we both like a lot Uh, so before we get into even looking at the like the value of this particular film do you want to fill me in on sort of what your relationship to this movie is what this thing means to you oh oh man oh mark okay so the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, along with being one of the most ridiculous ideas for a property imaginable, <laughs> sure. and co-opted from a very small, like, two dudes who made their own indie comic imprint and turned it into a, a, a way to print money from all the toy sales. Aside from that, it's like, it's just so integral to me as a, as a human person, as a real-life human boy. <laughs> Growing up, going to like the store with my grandparents or my parents every week. That was the thing that I wanted every time we went down the toy aisle. So I had like just a crate full of Ninja Turtle shit from whenever I was a kid. The 1987 series was like the thing that like I grew up on and this like 1990s movie series. But like you do later, like you go back in, you find the comic. Um, Yeah, it's it's so fucking dumb. It's a really just it's it's truly stupid, Mark. (laughs) <laughs> that something called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles became like a worldwide phenomenon and not like a laughing stock. 
that's a thing I'd like to get into a little more. And I, I don't know how deep to dig into some of these ideas, but man, am I fascinated by the fact that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles really are, as, as you said, a global phenomenon. Like of all the things to stick. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I'm not complaining. They are they are no. foundational to me as well. But why the Ninja Turtles? Like what what do you think it is that worked about them in a way that made them survive uh, and sort of outlive other contemporary properties? Oh man, I I think if we knew that we could then then we would also be like <laughs> talking about biker mice from Mars or sure. the real cowboys of Moo Mesa today because <laughs> they tried real fucking hard to like bottle that lightning and they just they just didn't or street sharks like nobody who's not in our age bracket knows what those things are i mean they're legitimately unstoppable right my grandchildren are going to be watching new ninja turtle shows i'm certain of it probably i'm i'm shocked that like our generation's kids still have this property to go to that like they have their own ninja turtles there are there are some things that feel like they reach a sort of critical mass where they just become part of our general cultural awareness. And I like to talk about it in context of the way storytelling used to work before we had sort of recorded media, right? So I I'm, I do another program where we talk about Hercules and Xena. Not looking at them as a television franchise, but considering Hercules as a hero or looking at a character like uh, Robin Hood or King Arthur. uh, Obviously, these are all very Eurocentric examples because those are the stories I grew up with. (laughs) Sure. Uh, But, you know, these heroes exist in all cultures where they sort of transcend time periods and no one legitimately knows if there was an actual source for Robin Hood and if there was where he came from because he shows up across hundreds of years of storytelling king arthur shows up and you know the kind of the background events of what made robin hood get tweaked a little bit as he moves from like a forest in wales to nottingham or whatever uh or or the story from hercules changes from heracles in the greek to hercules but these kind of these mythical figures become significant parts of our sort of cultural storytelling and i would make the argument i've made it before and i realize it sounds absurd but in modern american storytelling figures like batman and like the ninja turtles sit in that same space we're still telling x-men stories and we may retweak the origin right the 1990s x-men cartoon had a different origin stories from the 60s comics similar in tone but different in location Uh, Again, with the movies kind of updated, but, you know, and somehow the Ninja Turtles feel like they may have slid into that space, right? That they are a thing that is going to kind of outlive their creator and that their story is going to keep getting retold. And that's really silly. I find it especially oppressive because they're a a Daredevil parody and they have more (laughs) ubiquity than Daredevil does. That's a very good point. Yeah, that is bonkers to me all right let's I, I suppose we probably ought to turn to discussing this particular movie but i think i could spend our entire hour just talking about how much i love the fact that it is the year 2019 and we're talking about the ninja turtles uh, not as a thing that we're looking back on fondly alone we're both looking back on mm-hmm. it fondly 
but as a Certain. franchise that is also still viable today. My kid has new Ninja Turtles stuff to watch. Let's get into this specific movie. Uh, and the first thing, I guess, for me as an observation uh, is I have trouble, and this will be a thing we bump into with a few of the franchises we talk about. I have trouble divorcing films that were foundational to me in my childhood from any sort of like contextually useful critical review. Yeah. And the Ninja Turtles is right in that space. Like this movie, as soon as the credits come up, the intro theme starts, I am enraptured. I am in love with this movie three seconds into this movie beginning. No, definitely. Uh, and it borrows so heavily from the, the, the first episode of the 1987 animated series mm. that like, it's just, it immediately is like hitting all my nostalgia buttons. Like, <laughs> Not only do you remember this movie that I still think is a legitimately good movie, but it is taking from this TV show that, despite a great first five episodes, is not a good TV show. No, but there aren't a ton of <laughs> But you're right, this movie does, like you, I, I found the Ninja Turtles through that cartoon. I was five when it launched, so I was, you know, right in its demo. And this is the thing I'd like to talk about. Outside of those initial five episodes, the movie feels exactly like the mm -hmm. Ninja Turtles. Uh, the show, uh, and even more accurately, the comics, and you have some thoughts on that I we can get into. Do. But what I like about the movie is it lives in... It's a comic movie, right? It's silly, it's fun, it's made mm -hmm. for kids, but it lives in kind of a dark place. It does. It feels like it's kind of wearing both of those masks of the early Mirage run and the 1987 mm. series. It's It blends those two in a really seamless way where this feels like these feel like the turtles from the 1987 series. I feel like they are embodying those characters <laughs> pretty well, but I also feel like the world they live in is the same one they live in in the Mirage comics. And Blending those two incredibly disparate tones and making it work at all um, is really impressive. Uh, as, as impressive as something about, you know, pubescent turtles who do ninjutsu can be. <laughs> right. So this movie exists in a world where the Ninja Turtles are already around. Uh, which is to say they've already done their train. It's not it's not an origin movie. I mean it has some flashbacks and things. So it's got it's got some origin stuff baked in. But it's not an origin movie. For me the like this is very much Raphael's movie. Everybody can get their awes out because I do think it's a very much a movie about identity and family as most of my favorite movies tend to be. <laughs> and I think like even right after it's no I think it's right before we get April back to the lair, we get that really sweet scene, like right off the bat, between Splinter and Raphael after he loses the sigh and he's like this cesspool of yeah. teenage hormones. And like somehow <laughs> the Henson Workshop sells a big rat puppet consoling his big <laughs> rubber bodysuit turtle son. This was built a lot on the back of the technology that gave us the Gorgs from Fraggle Rock. Oh, yeah. And the, the Doozers, too. So Henson had kind of transitioned from not just doing, like, hand-in-glove puppets 
to doing animatronic puppetry, right? So where where you would kind of work a puppet from off stage via a sort of animatronic tool. Uh, it's the same sort of stuff that gave us dinosaurs, if you remember that that program. You better fucking believe I do. <laughs> it's it's surprisingly good, and there's a weird honesty to the puppets that some of the slicker CGI stuff that comes later will lose. Uh, I have a lot of feelings on puppets that I won't get into <laughs> get into in depth. You have you have feelings about puppets? I never knew this about you, Mark. <laughs> so I grew up without wasting a, a lot of time on this scene between uh, Raphael and Splinter. I grew up with a really cool dad. I'm very lucky. I still hang out with my dad. I still kind of want to be my dad in some ways. Oh. His name's Mark, so it, it's like it, it's baked right in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- you're halfway there. But I am still, uh, despite that, I am still a real sucker for the uh, stand-in is not the word I want, but the the stand-in father figure. That is a trope that will work for me 100 times out of 100. It's a very good trope. <laughs> and it's, it's especially an interesting dynamic, I think, with Splinter and the Turtles, because he's their sensei, right? He's their instructor, mm-hmm. which has a lot of fascinating layers to begin with. But he is very much also their landlord, in a sense. He's their <laughs> their father. He's their primary provider. And he's just like a weird rat. <laughs> he's just a rat. <laughs> he's just an old rat that somehow learned how to how to do karate yeah, and he just this is the cool and this is why i like a good surrogate that's the word i wanted when i was looking for stand-in surrogate hey there you go surrogate father <laughs> i like a good surrogate father figure story because it's just a guy who saw a need right he saw four kids that needed love and his reaction mm-hmm. to that was i can provide that hell yeah and specifically i think And in the context of these movies, somehow, especially this first one, you kind of do get a little bit of a peek at the different relationships he has. Like, each of the turtles has different needs. And because he's a good father, he relates to each of his sons differently. He does. But very specifically, you're right, I think, the way in which he relates to Raphael, uh, and in part because, and I had never framed it this way before, but you're correct, this is Raphael's movie. Uh, the way in which Splinter relates, relates to Raphael is really very moving. And and a lot of it is Raphael's, and maybe this is why this movie speaks well to kids, he is experiencing the classic transitional teenage angst, right? Yes. This sort of, who am I? What is my role in this world? And I had this identity given to me. Is this really the identity I even want? And, Definitely. And Splinter's never railroading him. You know, he's providing him support. He's providing him context. He's correcting him at times. But he's never railroading him into a thing. He respects his weird green teenage boy's autonomy. <laughs> yeah. So Raphael has saved April. He's brought her back. And she is now kind of stuck engaging with the idea that there are... I mean, the name says it all, right? There's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just living under New York. Uh, and to her credit, she gets on board with the idea fairly quickly, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Mostly for the sake of, of moving the plot forward, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. 
think it'd be a very different movie if it was just <laughs> it's two just... hours of dwelling on April's existential crisis. Right? I would watch that movie. <laughs> so after kind of giving her the background of who they are and, and how they came to be, the whole toxic waste thing, which continues to be one of the greatest inventions of comics, right? Like, I just wander into some radiation. Yeah, it's fine. So they take her home because they know she's the foot are after her. So they, to, to kind of keep her safe, they escort her home. Uh, by the time they get back, Splinter has been kidnapped. And that yes. sort of kicks off, I think, the major plot driver, I guess, of, of the film. Yeah, I, w- I would say that's accurate. It's very much from there forward. Splinter's gone. How are they going to cope with this? Having to kind of make their own decisions without what is ostensibly their leader here. Um, it kind of, it kind of works. Kind of, kind of plays off some of the stuff in the Mirage comics with Leo getting injured uh, later on, which in this movie it's Raphael, but right. It's, it's very much dealing with those themes of like, whenever you have to be your own person, when that lighthouse is gone, how are you going to pull that boat in? Yeah. How are you going to cope with that? And we see them all react very differently. Um, we see we see Donatello kind of pouring himself into whatever he can do to try and fix things. Like, to, yep. Like, try and channel that energy somewhere more useful. We see Raph just kind of like internalizing all that anger. Yep. Uh, we see <laughs> we see Leo like just truly despondent in this version of events. Yeah. I really like that because so often we see Leo as kind of the white knight of the turtles. And I really liked seeing the version of him that wasn't prepared for it yet. Yeah, he's very he's dimensionalized in a very nice way in this movie that not every other interpretation gives him. Usually it's just like he's the blue one that yells, get him, gang. (laughs) Yeah, I guess Mikey copes the best just because he kind of discharges everything with humor anyway. He kind of does the best job of coping. In the interestingly in the Mirage comics, he is the worst one in terms of coping with things. <laughs> like his happy go lucky demeanor kind of falls away and he really just kinda of like digs into training and really internalizes how he is fucked up in the situation. That's an interesting take, and I didn't come to the comics till much later, so I was probably in my twenties by the time I read them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my understanding of the turtles is framed initially through the cartoons in these movies, but it really is. And I don't know that it would have worked for the movie, uh, at least unless you had made it a movie about Mikey instead of Raphael. Right. It's not his movie. And there's already a lot of moving parts to juggle. From this context, we kind of have two parallel plots running. We've got the turtles sort of trying to sort out what to do. And that turns into a lot of kind of arguing between Raphael and Leo. And we also get a, a little bit into Danny Pennington, who is one of the other key players of this story, right? Danny right. being, which I had not remembered until we rewatched this, that he was the son of April's boss. Right. <laughs> I guess that's his kind of his connection to the universe, but he's just like your stereotypical sanitized delinquent, right? Right. He's like an aimless suburb kid, but living in the city. Proper? Yeah, yeah that's a very good way to put it. <laughs> and he has somehow fallen in with the foot. And if Sam Rockwell tells you to like join a gang, 
I guess you just have to join a game. <laughs> right? Which, what are you going to do? Which I propose for our listeners uh, who are of age. A good drinking game is just take a drink every time Sam Rockwell's on screen. <laughs> because you may think, oh, well, I didn't even remember that Sam Rockwell was in this movie. But like they use him as hench- of, as unnamed henchman number whatever a million times in this thing. Yeah. I And this is another thing I didn't realize until we were preparing for this show. He does not have a name. He doesn't. But he's basically like, in a lot of ways, sort of the the number one thug. Like the he's not a, the boss of the foot or anything, but he's just sort of always the one there. No, he's like the he's like the cool assistant manager. I don't know. Yeah. He's like he, <laughs> he he he. I'm pretty sure he's just Sam Rockwell. Are we sure that like Sam Rockwell just wasn't in a gang called the Foot Clan? <laughs> It's entirely possible. He's not like the Shredder. He's not Tetsu, which is like a a character that I, I man, somebody's going to nail me for this, but I believe was just created for this movie. But yeah, he's just kind of like the guy who recruits <laughs> young boys to join his gang. I like the idea of him as a recruiter. Like he's just got a sad shop in the local mall. That's just what he does. He's got a kiosk and and like a Bluetooth headset, and he just sits there. There's just a big glowing for any sign. Teenagers in like leather jackets yeah. and bandanas. Psst. Y'all like cigarettes? <laughs> cigarettes so, and pinball. <laughs> what every teenager dreams of right. in the nineties. So, so Danny sees the turtles hanging out with April. He knows that like his boss's boss's boss shredder is on the lookout for this. Right. So he tips him off and this tip off is sort of inadvertently what leads us to meet Casey Jones, right? Uh, I think does he? Because based on that tip, the foot ambush Raphael on the roof of April's building. And I know we meet Casey Jones earlier in the movie. Uh, oh, you're right. Him. He does come up earlier. Yeah, we meet him when Raph is out to see a late night showing of Creatures 3 or 2. That's I don't right. know. Some fucking showing. And then uh, he runs into him just on the street beating up a couple of purse snatchers. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, you're right. So he does show up earlier. I love that scene because we get the uh, Jose Canseco back. Tell me you didn't <laughs> pay money for this. So... There's some tension initially right between specifically Raphael and Casey because Casey is, for the context of this movie, Casey is kind of more violent than the turtles are comfortable with, Mm -hmm. which is consistent with his portrayal elsewhere in, in turtles media for sure. I don't know. That's kind of up in the air. I think we have in most of the more hardline media, he's the... He's the guy that Raph butts heads with because they're both trying to fill a similar role in the mm, city. Good point. They're both trying to just be that, like, I'm going to do things my way and fuck you if you want to try and tell me differently. And then we have him in some of the more, like, kids-aimed media where he is definitely the more brutal of right of the group. Except for, I think, in the 2012 Nickelodeon series where he was not quite that either. Just kind of a fucking gap. Goofball? That's a very yeah. good series. Don't, I'm not hating on that series because it's very good. But they definitely made some choices with Casey Jones is all I'm saying. So Casey steps in to help out Raphael. 
Mm-hmm. And in within this fight, April's building catches on fire? Whenever Raph gets jumped by the foot to bring it back to yeah. where we were before we backtracked. Yeah, uh, Raph gets jumped on the roof by the Foot Clan and overwhelmed. And they throw him through the like the window of the junk shop that is downstairs from her apartment. From there, they all have a big fight scene, and Casey shows up last second. I believe Michelangelo calls him Wayne Gretzky on steroids. <laughs> uh, and then they fight until the, the building burns down, and they have to retreat. And uh, Casey hears that April has been fired. And it launches from there into uh, what Turtles fans know as the Northampton arc, which, man, I have some feelings about. Uh, Because, and I touched a bit on this earlier whenever I was talking about how all the Turtles were affected in different ways in the absence of Splinter. And the same thing can be said here. Uh, In general, if there's a good iteration of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that exists out there, it includes this arc. (laughs) <laughs> the ones that miss the mark, like the Bay version, uh, which I know he didn't direct, but he was an executive producer on, and right. the uh, 1987 series, those that don't quite capture all those qualities of the Turtles, they exclude this arc. And I think it's really important to those characters, because we see them, like we were talking about earlier, grappling with what do we do without our leader present. In the comics, and in many iterations, Leo is the one that gets fucked up, not Raph. So he gets thrown through the like the window of the the antique shop and is the one that's incapacitated. And in this movie, we even get a lot of the same lines that are lifted straight from that Mirage comic version of it. In the comics it's Raph and Casey working on the truck, but when Donatello and Casey are like trying to get that running, a big chunk of that conversation is just lifted straight from the page. The framing device there of April O'Neil writing journals about their stay there is lifted straight from the Mirage run. Right. And there are definitely some differences between the two and between every other version. In general, the Northampton arc is about the Turtles suffering their first major defeat Mm. and seeing one of their own hurt incredibly badly rather than just like magically coming out mostly unscathed from a bat. And kind of grappling with that like there's a there's a humanity there to like they are our heroes are vulnerable our heroes will fail and i know that our heroes are anthropomorphic turtles uh that, <laughs> that eat pizza and yell 80s surfer slang but right. there's there's some heart there there's some legitimate pathos underneath these incredibly silly characters <laughs> yeah it's 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 interesting so for the purposes of the movie that obviously gets a little condensed, right? We've got mm-hmm. a not quite two hour movie. It's really an hour and a half long movie. Yeah. Uh, but I would argue that they do a pretty good job at capturing a lot of what you were just talking about there. Uh, in, in in the movie, obviously, they haven't been doing their jobs long yet. So mm-hmm. some of the context of this is they've been obviously chafing, uh, Raphael especially, at all of this secrecy, at having to keep their operations small, at being sort of pinned down and trapped in their sewer, and they've wanted to get out and do. 
And here we see, like, oh, as soon, literally as soon as we got out, right? We, we took April home. It was just an escort mission. It was an escort mission. <laughs> yeah. And everything just went to hell right away. And we see, especially Leonardo and Raphael, I think, but we see them all kind of grappling with that. Oh, this is what we wanted. And it went sideways just immediately. Yeah. It's very Spider-Man in that we're getting, we're getting a thing we want, but we are paying a heavy cost. For, yeah. In response to that. And all of this is happening at a, like a farm, I think, sort of to the north of New York City that belongs to April's family. In Northampton, Massachusetts, which right. is where the art gets its name. Uh, <laughs> in point. the comics, it belongs to Casey's grandmother in the initial run. Uh, yeah, that's right. And But yeah, in this movie, I believe it's one of April's relatives. So there's there's two kind of arcs at play here. One is the turtles regrouping uh, and sort of, in some senses, drawing back together as a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other is a, an abbreviated love story between April and Casey. Yes. <laughs> if we want to call it that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels, of most of the things in this movie that are very organic in a sense like it's a very contrived movie obviously it's about teenage turtles that got powers from ooze right suspending that disbelief right the the story story all sort of unfolds organically because really in a lot of ways it's a story about adolescents grappling with their role in the world and the loss of their father and and with Mm -hmm. all of that kind of unfolding in a pretty natural way the april and casey stuff does feel a little forced it does if I was doctoring the script for this movie, if somebody was dumb enough to put me in charge of changing the uh, the course of a big Hollywood production, I would I would cut that out and maybe only hint at it towards the very end of the movie, after everything comes to a close, and I would cut the Danny subplot almost entirely. <laughs> yeah, this is a thing we did especially in this era. Where where we have to sort of give the viewer a proxy in the movie, right? right. Danny is our way in. And I don't think we needed that. I really think everyone we got don't. on board with Raphael. Like, Raphael's our way in. We all understand right. his story. Absolutely. Danny is superfluous. He's serving a purpose that another character is already serving the audience. <laughs> and he's not interesting. I don't care no, about you, Danny. No one cares about you. He's not interesting, and even as a kid, you just get angry at him for being dumb. Yeah, he's frustrating. (laughs) He is. But, you know, how are we going to watch this movie if there's not a human for us to empathize with? I don't know. How could could anybody want to sit through this entire movie if there's not a forced love plot between the only two human characters? So what's been going on? Let's let's get back to Danny for a little. Sure. While the turtles are at Northampton... Danny has been sort of becoming friends with Splinter. Yeah. Or or more accurately, Splinter sees a hurting young man, and even as, like, imprisoned and sentenced to death, doing what he can to help that young man. What a good dad. Splinter's just... (laughs) Splinter's one of them good daddies. He's just a real good daddy. He's so good. Throughout all of this, as he's kind of advising Danny, he's helping him understand his own internal motivators, right? He's leading Danny to identify what brought him here and, and what he's fighting with inside of himself and why he's trying to get those things filled by 
you know, the foot. Right. And so by the time Danny finds out that Splinter is going to be killed, he cares enough about Splinter that he intervenes, or at least he, he gets Casey to <laughs> intervene. Right. As that's unfolding, as Splinter is working with Danny, Leonardo has been reaching out to Splinter in some sort of metaphysical sense. Yes. Which is a choice that I think works pretty well for this movie. Better um, than it has any right to, really. Yeah. It like it it feel it shouldn't feel as earned as it does. And I'm not sure earned is the right word because there's really no reason for it to happen other than to push the plot forward. But right. It doesn't feel like a bandage over the plot, if that makes Not sense. Not at all. Like, it feels in keeping with the world they have built. Yep. Um, if there are walking, talking turtles who can do ninja shit, then, uh, then sure, they can talk to their master Yeah. as a big blue burning puppet <laughs> force ghost. That's totally well, it, a thing that can happen. And Leo specifically, we talked earlier about how all the turtles have kind of different relationships with their dad. Mm-hmm. Leo has always sort of been his number one student in a lot of ways. He's the leader. The relationship that he has with Splinter is very much that of a uh, a master and his student. Mm-hmm. And and I think this sort of leans into it, right? This is this is very obviously a technique that they have been. At least the way my brain backfilled the plot. They have been working on this together. This is something Splinter's been teaching him. It works in that way because we have the... At the beginning, right after they get back to the lair from saving April, uh, right. it's meditation time, and they're doing that. And oh, yeah. Leo, Leo's the one that actually sits down to meditate while Donnie and Mikey start dancing. <laughs> and Raph goes out like to take off and do a thing. So it does... Right. There is a through line there where Leo has been the one more focused on this side of his training. He specifically has put some commitment to this aspect of the craft. Correct. So this all kind of leads us to our denouement, right? Uh, Casey and Danny have set Splinter free. The turtles have followed the sort of prompting of the conversation between Leo and Splinter. And we just get this big combat showdown. Yes, the big third act fight sequence that every movie needs. And delightfully, the turtles kind of, they do not fare well. (laughs) Despite all of their, you know, they're going back to rescue their dad. They've found their purpose. They've Mm -hmm. sort of, in some capacity, rediscovered their relationship as a family. They've kind of refound their commitment to what they're doing. Even so, the Shredder is just a monster. Right. As much of a monster as they can make him in that well, ridiculous yeah. <laughs> purple silk costume that they gave him in this movie. But yeah, you don't feel like he shows up last second and then our heroes just overcome him through the power of teamwork and then everything's fine. Right. He still very much feels like an old master. You feel like he he does inspire fear in the audience by proxy of the turtles, even in a ridiculous costume. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And it feels all very on brand. It's not like, in, and we're going to get to the fucking second movie, guys. And I'm going to have a lot of not great things to say about that <laughs> second movie. But he's not easily overcome. He's not made into a joke in this movie. No, not at all. It's great. And 
it keeps in context, I think, with the shape of this movie, which is very much about the turtles still coming out of adolescence in a lot of ways, right? That they're still they're still new kids. They're still sorting out who they are and what they do, and they have training, and they have a little bit of experience, but when they come toe-to-toe with a master, they're not ready for that yet. And a lot of this movie is really about how the turtles are dealing with the fact that they're not ready, and they have to do it anyway sometimes. But of course, it does ultimately come down to a showdown between Splinter and Shredder, which is fun in a lot of ways, right? This movie is about the Ninja Turtles. Their name's right on there. But the ultimate showdown is still their old dad stepping in. Yes. And it brings us back around to like these themes of of family and fatherhood between yeah. these two, two uh, kind of patriarchs over their two separate clans, as it were. And how they embody these kind of different aspects of fatherhood. One that's stern but nurturing and respects his son's autonomy. And is just a very good dad. And then we have the Shredder who is... Maybe he gives them all this fun stuff, but is abusive and controlling and uh, a, a toxic father figure. And it's wholesome to see... A good dad, even if he is a big, nasty sewer rat, come out on top. (laughs) It is. And it's so amazing that that's the story that this movie is telling when you get down to it. You know, again, a story about Ninja Turtles (laughs) is telling a story about parenthood and about kids relating to their parents and you and i have talked off mic a lot about how we're both really attracted to kind of coming of age stories yes that's a lot of what's going on in this movie it is sort of secretly a coming of age story i think so i I wish we didn't need i wish they wouldn't have shoehorned danny in there because the turtles are coming of age but but yeah yeah stupid danny god (laughs) damn it danny It's just Dan now, Mark. It's just Dan. Oh, right. Yeah. (laughs) So Splinter, of course, ultimately wins the show. There is a sort of complexity, I guess, to Splinter, to how he's relating to Shredder. Because we didn't get into this a lot yet. There's a backstory Mm -hmm. here where the Shredder was a ninja who murdered Splinter's master. Yes. So he has kind of a complex relationship with Shredder. But ultimately, I don't think he's not in it to kill or necessarily even really hurt Shredder. He's in it to save his boys. In this iteration, yes. Yeah. That story obviously is different across different chunks of the media. But ultimately, uh, because of Shredder fighting till the very end, Splinter does end up I mean, technically, he dumps him into a garbage truck and then Casey crushes him. Oops! <laughs> yeah. But he does sort of end up, in theory, killing Shredder. We will find out, obviously, yeah, that's not what happened. But In theory. I like to believe that second movie didn't happen, but we'll get there. <laughs> Gonna have to talk about it, man. That's what the point of this podcast is. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, that, so that's kind of the arc of the movie. Are there any other observations we want to make before we shift gears? I mean, Danny's dumb. The Shredder's costume's dumb. Overall, it's, yeah. it's, it's really fun, and there's some genuine heart underneath everything. One thing, very briefly, and I know we're, we're running long already. Shocking. But Shocking. 
if we can briefly talk about sort of the cinematography, the set designs, the costuming, it's a really cohesive world they built on what's frankly a pretty small budget. Mm-hmm. And most of that, the set designers do a really great job, but in terms of embodying the characters, a lot of that is hints and stuff. The degree to which those puppets are believably alive and to which you are willing to invest actual kind of autonomy into them. It's pretty wild. Especially when, like, I know whenever you're in the farmhouse, Donatella laughs and you can see the actor inside's face. I know that. (laughs) You can see the seams between their heads and their, like, their necks. Like, it's (laughs) it's not super well hidden, but then they still sell you that these are walking, talking characters. Good puppetry, I guess, can do that. And I think you're right. Somehow the turtles have a similar thing there. Like, you know, you know there's a human in there. You can see the artifacts the the construction of the costumes mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter because you you've be, you've put your belief into that thing as a real thing and I, and I don't know how they pull it off but man they do which is a credit to the actors inside the costumes it's a credit to the designers of the puppets to the people doing the voice work when we see Michelangelo that's three people working to make that character <laughs> right convincing for the audience and within the like the discussion of set design and costuming and all of that, I realize there's also some baked in nostalgia for me because it looks like my childhood, right? The the oh. late eighties, early nineties is the world that I recognize. <laughs> to that whole early nineties aesthetic, there's some weird just the way movies looked during that time, the way the world in those movies looked feels like home because it's what I grew up. <laughs> absorb him all right this is the part of the show where week to week we'll talk about where this movie lines up with other movies in the franchise but yes. right now it's the first one we've talked about right so i guess right now it's at the top it is at the top yep i have a feeling it's not going to move <laughs> i don't think it's too much of a reveal to indicate <laughs> that this one's probably going to always be number one yeah all right, so what is what is next for us, I guess? Well, what's next would be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. <laughs> Speaking of going downhill. Yes. Uh, is it too soon to say that this is my least favorite of the franchise? Because <laughs> it might be my least favorite of the franchise. <laughs> I have rewatched 2 and 3 so much less than I have rewatched the original. Oh, man. Uh-huh. I am very, very excited, morbidly curious, perhaps, to revisit, especially this one, because I remember it being handily my least favorite, because three becomes just kind of dumb fun. Yeah, I watched the crap out of that third movie growing up, (laughs) and I have never been able to get into the second movie, and I know so many people love that, so if, if you're really excited to be mad at two people's opinions... (laughs) definitely come back for the next episode the third one sucks is a retrograde orbit radio production if you like the show make sure to rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice it really helps us out follow us on twitter at the third one sucks or email us at the third one sucks at gmail.com where we can chat about episodes and take your suggestions on what you would like us to cover in the future that's the the number three rd1sucks at gmail.com 
If you aren't already tired of our voices, you can check out our other projects, including Mindful Self-Indulgence, where Dan interviews folks about the media that has most impacted their lives, and Mount Olympus, where Mark and a panel of friends watches and reviews the Hercules and Xena television franchises, along with the rest of the Retrograde Orbit Radio family of podcasts at RetrogradeOrbitRadio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in the sequel.